This is Continuum Drag, a weekly podcast for visiting television, sci-fi, fantasy, and everything in between. This week, The Martian Chronicles, Part 2. Wilder's mind is a confusion of troubled thoughts. Thoughts about the dead Martian who might have taught them something of the planet they're living on. Thoughts of the planet they have left behind. The world about to face its final war. Welcome to Continuum Drag, the podcast attending the Martian Orthodox Church. I'm Luke, here with my co-host Jordan. What's real, Jordan? I have a question back for you. Should we open a Western-themed restaurant on Mars? Does that seem like a good business idea? It see, that seemed like a, just the top, the best business idea I could think of. I, if, if I were the first man, one of the first men on Mars, that is what I would do for sure. This is getting off topic a little bit, but I, I don't know if you both noticed the logo or the sign for the restaurant was a guy, like a cowboy riding on a rocket. And I thought, money well spent. <laughs> well, well, we'll get to that very late in this episode. Yeah, <laughs> it's literally the last 10 minutes of the episode, I think. This week, we are uh, joined by a guest to talk about the Martian Chronicles. Uh, l- welcome to the show. It's Dr. Phil Nichols, editor for the new, Brad- new Ray Bradbury Review and an advisor at the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies, a man who can tell us all about Ray Bradbury and this miniseries. Welcome to the show, Phil. Hi, it's good to be here. So I'm assuming, given, given that you have a PhD in the sort of, I believe it's the screenwriting of Ray Bradbury? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I mean, this isn't it written by Bray Bradbury, but I know from reading about it, he had a lot of thoughts about it. And I think he, he, as a screenwriter, had his own opinions on this film. So I'm very curious if you have any any kind of like background on Ray Bradbury and the making of this. <laughs> well, it goes back a hell of a long way because he the book came out in the 1950s and he was trying to uh, get a film made as early as 1955 i think oh wow and he wrote a, his first screenplay for it around 57 and then all through the early 60s he was trying to get the film made and he he was just fighting a losing battle but he wrote probably three complete screenplays uh, in the 50s and 60s oh really so there are three other versions of this he's written oh yes at least and he wrote some more after this as well <laughs> So this was this was something he really felt pretty passionately about, and then he did not get to write it. <laughs> well, he, he did have the opportunity to write this one, uh, but he chose not to because he was pretty burned out on it by this point. Oh, he, he'd also, enough. the year before this one started, he had done his stage play version, which was very successful in Los Angeles. And I think he felt that he, he'd exhausted his ability to do anything with the material at that point. Oh, man. I would be very interested in seeing a stage play version of this. <laughs> well, Phil, uh, we like to ask guests when they when they come on the podcast the first time. What's your what's your sort of like background? How did you how did you become a fan of science fiction? I, I grew up with it all around me, I think. I mean, my childhood is is mostly memories of of television, of, uh, you know, Batman, Star Trek. <laughs> Uh, Lost in Space, all of those sorts of things, which were on constantly when I was a child. And so I was fully immersed in science fiction on the screen long before I read any. And then Bradbury was the first author that I read. And I 
uh, oh, you can get this stuff in books as well. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is a very familiar story to me. This is very much I'm also just like just watch a lot of TV and then I'm like, no, I like this. Maybe I can read about it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's uh, that's great because that makes you perfect for this. If if you like, if you liked things on the uh, the TV screen that was science fiction, that's very much what this is all about. So, uh, good news. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I don't know. Do you have any last things before we get into the episode, either of you? Um, I, probably this is not too relevant for the listeners, but I'm just curious what you made of the first episode because I'm here to talk while you discuss episode two. But um, oh, that's what's the story point. so far? What's the story so far? We have not we have not released the last episode yet, so you have no idea what we thought. I mean, I will say this: uh, we came into the first episode pretty blind. I was very, very surprised how much I enjoyed it. It was like I had read that Bradbury had called the script like at a at a press conference before it came out. He called it boring, and then they had to push the release date because he was like had torpedoed it so badly. But when I watched it, I'm like, oh, I'm really enjoying this little first part of this miniseries. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. Right. Of course, this is after they had tinkered with it to make it better. Oh, I see. Mm. So there was perhaps a boring version of it available. (laughs) I think so. An even more boring version. (laughs) Well, I mean, I I think I liked it as well. And I wouldn't say it's action packed. Um, Like, you know, it's not like there's there's a laser fight at the end and stuff. But I thought in terms of a science fiction that was more about ideas and more about concepts and more about uh, humanity as a whole reflected through this mission, I thought it was effective. Now, it's not a blockbuster by any means, but I, I like the first episode. And and it's it may be a good segue into the second one because the second one has this a similar sort of pacing and tone to it, but the, the actual content of these, I, I think I call them vignettes of the first um, ep- uh, episode, which is a little bit more chopped up. It's uh, this one's a little bit different. I think the first the first episode was definitely a, a high point for us. I think we I think we both gave what seven point five. We we were quite mm-hmm. liked. It. Wow, <laughs> that's so, good uh, to know. We don't maybe perhaps don't agree with Ray Bradbury on that part, but we'll see. <laughs> I mean, maybe he changed his mind after he saw it. I somehow doubt it, but <laughs> well, then you without... mean when he, when he saw Rock Hudson delivering those lines, he said, "All right, I take back everything I say." <laughs> Well, without further ado, let's get into uh, episode two. Here's the IMDb summary for part two, The Settlers. With native Martians wiped out by disease, thousands of humans now colonize the Red Planet and attempt to create a second Earth. And this one begins, I mean, the effects are very, like, lo-fi in some ways. I mean, that's not true. They're just very, like, 1980s, not a lot of necessarily money for TV, but, like, the miniature work, I think, worked really well. And this one in particular starts with just, like, all these like huge silver rockets just like flying away from Earth toward Mars. And it's um, I really loved it. It's a great way to open this episode. I thought it was just like such a effective image when I when this episode started off. I was I was already excited to come back to this world. And we're going to find out really quickly that um, Colonel John Wilder from the first episode. Did they call him? Um, what was his actual position? They call him chief coordinator or something. Yeah, because he's he, like a mayor type figure. Yeah, I, I understand. Is he's now moved up from the Mars Mission Control to Mars to be? I, you're right. It's Chief right. Coordinator of Mars is his title. Right. And Phil, correct me if I'm wrong. I think because I read the book years and years ago, and I'm going into this blind because I didn't want to refamiliarize myself. I think he wasn't a character going forward, right? Isn't the um they they mixing him with another mayor character in this? Or am I wrong? 
No, you're absolutely right. In the book, because the, the book really is a collection of short stories, mm-hmm. you get a series of different space captains. And I think Wilder appears in maybe two stories in total. But um, the, the strategy that they've used for the series is to, to use him as the, the main space captain. So any, any of the stories that had a space captain in, it's him now. And I think that's a good choice, frankly. Yeah, I, I thought it was very effective. Well, I think once you cast a, you know, larger name like Rock Hudson, I don't know, I don't think he was at his full star power in 1980 or whenever uh, this was made. But um, I think when you cast a character like that, it's it actually is a nice kind of through line through the series. And I think we're going to we're going to go later in the, the, the plot line of um, Davy, David, the little alien boy. I think that was also modified a little bit, I think. Am I am I right to like connect it to the first the first one a little bit more? Yes, you're absolutely right. There's there's a lot more connective tissue between yeah. all the separate stories here. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the stories that you're going to be talking about isn't actually from the Martian Chronicles. They've they've shoehorned something else in there. But mm. I'll tell you more about that when you get to it. Oh, cool. Yeah, the very exciting. I'm very excited because I haven't <laughs> read these, so I was very curious, like how close or far. Like, I obviously get the sense they're very episodic. They're probably pulled from a bunch of short stories, but. I was interested because I, I legitimately thought I might come to the second episode and there might be an all new cast of characters. So I was surprised to see some of them returning. It was it's interesting. I, I really have no idea what to expect every time I watch the show. But I think it works. They're just like, yeah, he's uh, he's like the mayor now of the town. You're like, yeah, yeah. OK, sure. Done. I mean, we basically when we start, it's been three years, I think they say, since the events of part one. Uh, Rock Hudson's Wilders on Mars. And um, he is sort of there. In the way the last episode ended, they're trying. He's there to attempt to, in some way, to save some remnants of the Martian civilization, as per uh, Spender, the uh, astronaut who tried to kill him. His wish, his dying wishes. But despite his efforts, or in terms of whatever he's trying to attempt, like it's still getting colonized. Like I don't know how if they ever mention. Maybe I, I missed it. But do they mention how many people are actually on Mars? I did not hear it either. I, I think we're looking at a few thousand, I think, is kind of where yeah. we're falling. It's still very frontier days, it seems like. That city was happening, though, when they went uh, into town later. There was a lot of people walking around. So I was like, oh, it's more than I thought. <laughs> uh, you, 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 did you like the name of the, the first city on Mars, uh, First Town? Oh, was, that, was that what it was called? <laughs> yeah, they kept going, let's go to First Town. I'm like, you guys put a lot of effort into that. <laughs> I also like that at the beginning here, they're kind of, they allude to all the pre all the, the the three expeditions that went up because they've named like a bunch of things after after humans. So I'm just like, even one of them's named after Wilder. I'm just like, well, you're not doing a great job protecting Martian history here if you're just naming it after every astronaut who landed on it. But it is very funny when they run down a list of just like it's York Plain, Blackfield, Wilder Mountain, Spender Hill. I'm like, so many names. But they also call the canal Briggs Canal, and he's the one who was obnoxious. I, I thought that remember? was also very funny because it's like he's a obnoxious b he named that himself and then c yeah. was later murdered in that canal it's like oh, i guess yes. i guess he gets it to be fair i think it's pretty historically accurate though as to what would happen you know looking back it's just like hey i'm the first person to see that tree guess what it's my tree now you know what i mean yeah. so I, I i think it i think it checks out it is true i was i was literally just in quebec city which is one of canada's oldest cities where like you know france originally landed and literally everything's just like yeah a guy got off the boat he na- that's named after him uh, a farmer lived there so that's his name now i'm like i guess that's how it works you just show up and you just take it we i think we jump forward a little we're jumping to, i i believe it's to september 2006 so i think it's a little bit of a jump since we sort of see the uh wilder is now like the commander 
and we meet the parents of astronaut David Lustig, who uh, I did not remember, but apparently he's one of the astronauts from the second mm-hmm. mission when they landed in the small American town. So this is the part that I think they adjusted from the book, because I remember uh, vaguely this plot line of, which, not to ruin anything, is sort of about the alien who is, his appearance is reflected based on who is looking at him or it, I suppose. Um, I think they they adjusted this to connect it to the first the first story with David, which I actually think works works pretty well. Yeah, that's that's correct. And even to the point though that um, when I was rewatching this episode the other day, I I doubted that he was the same actor. So I actually went back to the previous episode to see if he really was there on that expedition, and he was. But he he was such a an, a non-entity in episode one that you you just don't notice him. I think they should have cut if they're going to do that. They really should have cast somebody who would be recognizable. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's a little bit famous. I agree entirely because I was watching. I'm just like, I do not remember this astronaut on that That's mission. Right. I, I also was less <laughs> like, I don't think he was on that mission. I think they yeah. recast someone. But you're right. Sure enough, I went and looked. I'm like, no, same guy. Because he yeah. wasn't David, uh, this astronaut. He wasn't the one that was sort of... Um... Uh, for lack of a better term, the leader of that expedition that went and talked to the people at the church, right? He was just one of the dudes in the background who's like, there's my dog. I believe that would have been the one who saw his aunt. He saw his aunt. Oh, he saw his aunt. (laughs) That's right. I think think there are three who sort of emerge from the rocket ship initially, and he's like the third one. So you don't really hear anything from him. But uh, far from casting someone famous, they cast somebody totally non-famous because it's uh, the the director's son. (laughs) <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's Michael Anderson Jr. <laughs> I like that. It's, it's such nepotism that he even has the same name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, he kills it, sort of. I mean, he's just, he's sort of like a non non entity in this in this. It's not like uh, he's command. He has a commanding presence on screen, but I think it's it's fine. He's mm. fine as this kind of confused uh, alien boy. As deer in the headlights, he does just fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, this is what's happening is is this this astronaut's parents, Leif and Anna Lustig, Leif, who must be the hairiest man on Mars. <laughs> I was I loved when he took off his shirt. I'm like, man, oh, man, they don't make him like that anymore. <laughs> they're they're They've set up a little house in on Mars next to a, a creek. Um, I, I believe it might even be Lustig Creek. I think they might be on the creek name for their son. And they've come up there to honor his memory, I think, is the idea, which is kind of sweet. I, a couple of things. I loved that they, um, they're they like in, living in like cottage country. They had to take their boat to town. I thought that was great. And, uh, and also, uh, this is the first time we get uh, to really see the outside and inside of what these um, building structures and homes look like. And they're all sort of, um, I, I thought it was a pretty good idea. They're sort of like modular homes, almost like... Um, steel kind of um they look like they've been purpose-built um but what i did think was funny is that they looked very kind of science fiction on the outside and then when we do go to town you do see some like uh futuristic looking chairs and stuff but the inside of this home of the um leif and anna it just looks like like a 1960s home for some reason and i just thought it was funny i was like does that match the outside or they just like they're like we know the style we like it's mid-century modern, and that's what we're going to decorate our house with, no matter that we're on the moon. Or Mars, excuse me. <laughs> it was. I do like the houses, too. They kind of have a very sleek silver. Like they, It's almost like yeah. shipping containers, but like a, a futuristic exactly. shipping container you've shoved together. But you point out a good point. Like They have that boat they'll go to town in later, and the boat is very like sleek and futuristic. Mm-hmm. And then it just got an outboard motor. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's very funny <laughs> to me. 
<laughs> you know what the town looked like, Luke? What was that other show we just watched? Um, uh, it was like a seven episode series, and they're like in the I don't know. Oh, it was the future it was and that, ghost might yeah, show. Yeah, that British show. Um, <laughs> so it's so memorable. It was so forgettable. I've forgotten entirely. <laughs> but it, anyways, it was the same concept of like a colony set up, and and what it would kind of look like is not what a you know purpose-built neighborhood here would normally look like it's more things that would have had to be shipped so the walls would have to be shipped the the floors would have to be shipped and and so forth are you looking up the show yeah of course i'm looking up the show what are you gonna say that and not and i'm not gonna look up the show <laughs> no phil's loving it he can't wait to hear it. outcast it's called outcast outcast outcasts that's what it was Phil, you remember Outcast, that show that no one remembers? No, sorry. You got me there. It was very it must have been very popular in its uh, home country of Britain. <laughs> it must have been. <laughs> At any rate, let's get back to Martian Chronicles. <laughs> that night the uh the Lustigs uh experienced a very big storm, which is I really like the just like they've just said like Mars is essentially like Earth, a little less oxygen, but don't worry about it. It's like a huge storm rolls in. There's no like no one explains why there are huge storms. They're just like, just go with it. But it's great. It's a huge storm. Things get really spooky. Like this very much started off like a weird spooky episode. During the storm, Leif, he, he hears some whistling outside and he steps outside. And in, in the distance, in the rain, is like his his a, a man. And like what we'll come to learn is his son. And it's very spooky. And I'm just like, is this going to be like a Ghost of Mars episode? Like we're going to just have like spooky stuff happening everywhere. And I, I liked it. It was a nice tonal setup to the episode in some ways because it was such a weird such a weird lost sort of way to start an episode of just like what is happening and and his whistling this is what it is right it's is it is it supposed to be um sort of like a siren call because later on they sort of uh drop a line of dialogue that um and uh, either one of you please correct me if i'm wrong that he had like uh sung or whistled and that sort of created some sort of i don't know what you'd call it not a mind wipe but like a um suggestibility that people would kind of just go along with the story of this person showing up that is clearly dead i don't i didn't catch that if that happened so that might am i been wrong a personal reading which is an interesting reading but i didn't catch it if that was the intention <laughs> no i could very well be wrong i thought i thought there was a line of dialogue that like he had he said something time like i sang to her when he's speaking to his mother and that she uh then was really like buying it but maybe i'm wrong i don't remember that either you may well be right. I may have dreamed. I may have dreamt it last night. You may want to watch the whole thing again now, in case right. I missed something important. That really changes the whole game. Whatever Jordan just invented <laughs> yeah. changes the whole game. No, I'm I'm probably wrong. But the the point being though is that this is sort of the crux of this sort of little story is that this person shows up, their son that has died, and the mother sort of wholeheartedly just is fine with it. Um, whether she's uh, lying to herself or not, she's just fine with it. And the father is uh, kind of wavering between like, do I just go with this because I miss my son? Uh, mixing with the reality that he knows it can't be his son. What I really like, Jordan, is that that is what happens the next morning when they wake up and the son is in the house now. But when yeah. they're that night when they're watching her in the storm, the wife comes out, sees her son too, and she's freaked out. And she's just like, Let's just go back to bed. And they both just go back to bed. And I'm just like, how did you both fall back asleep so easily? I don't understand. <laughs> but yes, you're right. In the morning, it's like he's there. They're sort of just like, I guess we're just going to sort of accept that our dead son has come back to life. Certainly Anna Lustig, the wife, is very much, she's just so happy to have her son back. She's just not going to ask any questions. 
and uh, his father is kind of a little skeptical, but you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth, I guess is the idea. And it's so funny because this is kind of where this little story leaves off and we, we move away into a, into a new story to come back to this later, which at first I was like, mm. I thought it was a little odd, but I think it actually like plays well with this weird vignette structure because that weird opening brings us into these two missionaries arriving on Mars, uh, Father Peregrine and Father Stone. Father Stone, of course, played by uh, Roddy McDowell in his, in his yeah, human yeah. mask this time. And am I wrong? It, it, did they do something to his eyes? I've never seen them before without an ape mask, so I can't. T- I couldn't tell it you. See, it seemed like he had like almost his eyes were like black contacts, but maybe it's just the uh, the the video quality we're watching this on YouTube. But I was like, is this going to be a thing? Because I I, I uh, and again, Phil, you're the expert. I I know this was in the book. This story, at least some version of this, was in the book. I remember. But I don't remember that being a thing. So I was like, maybe it's just something I saw. I was like, these eyes look weird. But it's it it's neither here nor there because it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's. I, I just think he has very compelling eyes in real life. <laughs> maybe that's what it is. I was just I was just falling in love with Roddy McDowell. Is what it was. <laughs> I mean, that's why he was so successful in the Apes movies is because of the the eye acting that he does, mm. which is absolutely magnificent. I think, and and I think when you see him without the ape makeup. He he always seems to be overacting to me, um, but but there's there's nothing significant in that I don't think. And no, I don't think so either. As for the story in the book, it's in some versions of the book, but not others. Because oh, is that it, right? Yeah, it wasn't in the original American version of the book, but it was in the original British version of the book, and then it was put into the American version, I think, in the seventies. So um, the, the whole text of the Martian Chronicles has been in flux ever since it was first published. and this I didn't realize is, that. I didn't realize there was different versions yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it, and it's really because it's, it's not really a novel, despite saying based on the novel by. It's not really a novel. It's really a short story collection. So, you know, it's, it lends itself to having bits added or taken away. That's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's it. it it's more like a shared universe that we're even watching the miniseries. It feels like we're watching segments from a bunch of different things in a shared universe. Yeah, yeah. But I think this uh, this was an interesting storyline to have in this because I think it was a more nuanced take on uh, faith and religion and belief than usually uh, uh, is portrayed in TV. And really, what it is is you have these two. I guess they're priests, although I don't know why they're dressed like Franciscan monks in 2024. <laughs> but regardless, that's how they're dressed in the future. Um, and you do sort of have these two views of uh, why they're there and what they think they should be doing to both the population and as a whole. Because they're really there. It's it's funny because they keep mentioning that they're there to sort of like save people or sort of like um, in, in this very sort of colonial Spanish going over to uh, the indigenous people and sort of converting them by force. I got a little bit of the sense of that. Well, it's interesting because they're they're sort of there to minister to the colonists because no one is supposed to be alive. But that's where Feather Peregrine kind of goes off in his own ways. He's heard rumors that a, a, some prospector had broken his legs in the hills and was saved by these glowing, glowing green or blue orbs. And he's very interested in meeting these orbs. And a little later in the story, when he's like talking about why he's so excited to meet these orbs, it sort of stems from what he says is he was he's interested in these rumors, particularly because when he joined the priesthood, his secret goal was to literally meet Jesus Christ in person yeah. was his reason for joining, which my favorite part is Roddy McDowell hears this and just looks at him like he's lost his mind. <laughs> you got to set high goals, I guess, right? 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I, I, it's kind of interesting because you were talking about how Roddy McDowell tends to o- can can overact. That is certainly a possibility for him. But he's playing the straight man versus this Doctor Peregrine or Father Peregrine, who's just like wildly like like not insane, but he's just like wildly enthusiastic about everything. So they're very funny, like back and forth between the two of them. Where the more time they spend together. It feels like they just met because uh, Father Stone, is, at every turn, is baffled by the things Peregrine wants to do. Which is the kind of the, the plot of this because they're going to get uh, get met um, by, um, what's his face, Wilder, who's sort of just like, I think, uh, Phil, you said before, it was just like a connective tissue. And that's sort of what they use him for. It's like, he's like, hey, welcome to town. Anyways, do you need stuff? They're like, nope, let's go off into the desert. And he's like, see you later. So he's off. <laughs> Uh, he almost gets the only person who gets kind of less to do is his wife and that poor actress has the worst role because in two movies she just shows up and is like souffle and then she walks off <laughs> off camera that's about it it's very true i mean in in this particular case the they do go they see some runes then they go they're like we'll walk back to first town which uh doc uh father stone's just like what do you mean we're gonna walk back and you're like come on let's just walk into these hills immediately get lost in these in these hills which is all uh, you know peregrine's plan He's there to find these orbs. And of course, these orbs appear very quickly. Peregrine is stoked because he's just like, sees them, they float down. And like, I think the f- first thing Peregrine says is just kind of like, I mean, this is not exactly what he says, but he's just like, hey, you, you guys into God? Because like, I can tell you all about God. And I laugh so hard because the orbs just like immediately start floating away. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's what I would do. So I bumped into someone who did that. But the, I, but sort of what happens is the orbs are there they're real they're not interested in hearing about god and then a rock slide happens they're endangered and the orbs swoop in to save them uh they i think they scoop them up and move them somewhere else and uh this sort of gives peregrine the idea that it's just like oh so if these orbs know to move us know to do something then they, they they've saved us that proves that there's some sort of sentience there and then this really gets him going. He now really wants to prove that if these orbs are sentient, then they must know about sin, in which case that they can be saved. And this is what he's really like on a on a mission now. He's like, can I convert Martians, these these Martian orbs to my religion? I think it's even more of that. I think it's just the whole concept of what he believes in is broadened because if we see ourselves as humans on Earth and there's this belief of, uh, Christianity or whatever it may be, um, that is based on Earth. And as soon as you go to Mars and there's other creatures or other beings, that version of what religion is has to be adjusted. And I think you get the push and pull between the two priests because Peregrine is all for it. He loves the idea of Martians. He loves the idea of Christian Martians. Uh, he loves the idea of adjusting the church to to accommodate them, which I thought was an interesting perspective whether that is is morally right or wrong is another another issue but i thought it was interesting to see how uh, his view was that he was excited about it it wasn't like i'm going to convince them to change their view it's like no no this is a larger worldview that we can have as opposed to um roddy mcdowell uh, roddy mcdowell's character who's more like just wants to get home he just wants to get home and do what he was supposed to do which is he's a missionary of types that's all he really wants to do so this guy's other view they just don't don't quite jive together. I thought it was it was really interesting concept that they they kind of play with a little bit, but um, I thought it was again it was it was subtle in a way that you don't usually see in TV, and so I like that. I think it's even more subtle in the original story because there's a, a little bit of going into the characters' heads and what they're thinking. Mm. So um, it, it's 
it, it, it develops them better as characters, but also their mission, their, their personal missions uh, is a little bit clearer. But I think that the, the version on the screen isn't bad. It's not a bad adaptation. The only thing that doesn't work for me is when they're supposedly lifted up by the 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 blue spheres, whatever those things are. Um, and the, the way it's accomplished is that, firstly, we see them on the ground from above, and then the blue balls are superimposed on them. And then the very next shot, we see them on the ground, but we're looking up at them. And that's supposed to make us think that the blue balls have carried them up onto this cliff. And it, that's not what it shows. <laughs> and it's, it's expecting us to believe something that we never actually saw happen. And it I, is a I weird it is a cheap. weird effect i agree i was also confused i thought because when i saw it too i was just like what like i saw the orb go down to them and then i'm like oh the orb's just like deflecting the rocks or something yeah. and then like they show show you the shot and you're like oh no they're up higher than they were it, it's i think like the effects well they look kind of nice this like optical effect of these orbs they're very limited and uh they're not using them to the best effect for sure <laughs> but, but the point the point really is that Peregrine wants to prove that there is sentience behind these lights, which he does prove. And then, I, it, which is funny about it, is like it sort of was proved at this point. Then they go to they go to sleep because they're too far out of town. They sort of make a fire, and then the orbs come back, and he's like, "I think I really need to prove it." Well, and it's just what he it's, needs it's to prove, funny. Is he needs to prove they know right from wrong, so that they, to prove they know sin, so they can be saved from sin. But it's an interesting thing because I don't know if sin. Where what was the sinful act? Killing yourself was that was that the? Was I that think the implication? that is the idea. Is he because he what he does is he gets up at night, sees the orbs, walks himself to a cliff, and then just like throws himself off that cliff, in the hopes the orb will swoop down and save him. And in doing so, he believes that will prove they know this was a an immoral act and saved. It him was a from literal it. leap of faith, which was interesting. And Phil, correct me. I believe that's in the book, right? Yeah. 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 And you're yeah. right. It is a leap of faith. It's exactly that. Um, and it, but it, it's funny though because you know I, I get it's a um, uh, and maybe not terribly cinematic the way they filmed it on this because of budgetary restraints. But it is funny just if you think as in a character level. I'm like, there's a lot of other things you could try, it, as opposed to throwing <laughs> yes. yourself off a cliff. But it, it is that literal leap of faith. So it's like I guess he's 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 going for it. He's all in. He's very lucky the way they responded <laughs> because they might they might have been busy. <laughs> they might have true. had other work to do. <laughs> or, or even if they were sentient and had intelligence, they may not have understood. You know, it's it's funny. There's this idea that not only uh, do they have intelligence, but it, it's the same intelligence that we as humans have. And it's just it's just funny. Him, like I understand his concept, but it is funny to see how many different ways that could have went. You know, <laughs> you're you're imagining a one where the blue orb they're floating there. They're like. Or do you think it, you think it can fly? I mean, it seems like it's pretty serious, but Gemini, I guess it can fly. And then it falls. Like, what? Why did it do that? Well, I mean, we we had heard previously that um, they saved someone who had broken his leg by moving him somewhere else. What if they thought we'll just fix him after he hits the ground? You know. <laughs> what I do like though is the orbs save him. Father Peregrine is stoked. This this has everything he wanted to know. They they know sin. They know right from wrong. They can be saved. And he immediately is like, listen, I'm going to come here. I'm going to build a church right here. But instead of instead of a cross, I'm going to put a big blue orb in to represent the Martian Christ. You guys are going to love it. It's going to be awesome. And for the first time ever, the orbs talk. And the orbs are basically like, ah, no thanks. No thanks. That's cool. We're good. No thanks. I love that they didn't communicate in terms of, uh, uh, you know, verbally communicate. I thought that was great. And I'm pretty sure it happens in the book, too. Phil, you can uh, clarify. But it's just that... 
like, hey, I'm going to do all this stuff. You guys really want this, right? And they're like, eh. I think we're rather not. We just like to float around, if that's okay. We're kind of beyond you and your church and your physical form. We just sort of float around. It's pretty good. Yeah, and you're right. It's in the book. It's in the book, pretty much. Yeah. And and this is one of the things with the book, is the Martians are so very inconsistent from one story to another. One At one point, they are physical, corporeal, if that's how you pronounce it, beings. And the next minute, they're blue balls of plasma that float around. And then they're ghost-like figures, and you know, it, so it's it's very inconsistent. And I think in a book you you can kind of get away with it, but in the cold hard reality of a TV screen, it helps if there's some consistency there. I think so they tried to weird. to uh, uh, connect that with that line of dialogue that the that the aliens actually give, though. I think they say like they've a sort of evolved. A few of them are the old ones, and they've evolved to the point where not everyone has achieved this nirvana or whatever it might be. So they they are they are kind of separate. So they they've evolved beyond the other ones. I think that's how they kind of try to talk in a way. Yes, they do. You're right, yeah. I do like that too, because they're like, yeah, we we transcended our physical forms. Uh, It was so long ago, we forgot how. Don't ask. We can't tell (laughs) you. (laughs) Yeah, there's not enough time. We've got to go rescue other people who are throwing themselves off cliffs for some reason. I mean, but tying it back to kind of the spiritual elements of this story, like the, the, the orbs do say it's just like, hey, listen, we can live forever and like, we're like we're 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 free from sin now like we the 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 entity you call god we're very familiar with it like there's this idea that like there's a higher plane or something that they exist on and they and they recognize that i guess in father peregrine's quest and kind of are like just head back deal with your own people but it's interesting they kind of do they don't completely dismiss the idea of like something beyond the physical realm with this they that you know it's i expected it to be either like a hard religion doesn't know what it's talking about or a hard like religion exists and they kind of fall somewhere between that. it's an interesting uh, an interesting concept that they're pulling up i think the subtlety to it i agree i think jordan you were saying earlier the subtlety is surprisingly effective in a story that i thought could go wrong in several ways yeah and i mean that's the thing as soon as you had like two priest characters i was like oh and i couldn't really remember until i had watched it played out how it was in the book and it was like i can see how this is gonna go it's he's gonna have his faith and he's gonna lose his faith and it's that sort of just trope we've seen over and over and it's not it's not that at all and i just i thought just as you're saying this sort of spiritual concept i thought it was it was well done if, if not exactly like the book, but still, I think the basic core ideas are there. I have to assume that a lot of the core ideas must be, even if even if they're not exactly as written, like, are pulled from the book. Because, like, how this, so far the show has dealt with colonization and religion, it's all much more thoughtful in a lot of ways than a lot of the shows we watch of TV sci-fi. Like, and, I, that, and the only reason I can think that must be the case is, like, it must be being pulled, like, this feels very literary. It feels like a, a much deeper thought on these things. And usually it's just like, ah, eh, we're it's the Wild West now. If it's a colony, it's just the Wild West and we're we're the cowboys. Like that's usually as much thought as it goes into it. And this is a lot deeper thought wise. Well, it, it is what I think is this sh- this show's strength. Because again, we we know the special effects are not great. Some of the acting's not great. And to uh, perhaps uh, Ray Br- Bradbury's point, it can be a little plodding and a little slow. But I do think the concepts and the ideas are strong enough that if you like that sort of science fiction and that sort of thoughtful portrayal of these ideas then you kind of forgive the things that don't work as well that like you know the containers don't look great and the boats kind of float funny you know you go oh well but the idea, the idea at least for me i think the the concepts are strong enough that you kind of forgive those things definitely definitely and i mean this story kind of wraps up here this is the end of sort of this this journey 
in that like uh i think peregrine wakes up stone at dawn and he's just like you'll never believe the adventure i just had and stone's like i don't i just want to go home and, and peregrine's like oh i've known the way home all along this was just a fun little side trip and they kind of wander <laughs> off and i was just like if i were stone i'd be so mad right now <laughs> And Phil, how is this different from the story in the book? Because I know most of the elements are there, but what is different? I think the uh, the only difference I can think of without actually going and looking at the story, which I haven't done recently, uh, is the, the, the title of the story in the book is The Fire Balloons. And it, it's because the... Those, those blue spheres are supposed to be moving in a way that resemble fire balloons, you know, where you get that kind of paper bag and you light mm-hmm. a fire underneath it mm. and you let it fly up into the air. So there's a, there's a reference to that within the story. And um, I think, I, I may have this wrong, but I think that one of the characters talks about that as being from their childhood. Mm. Um, so there's a, a little bit more character meaning uh, within the story but other than that it, it's basically the same thing it's it's really very similar i like that they've kept they've kept the character names as well some of the other characters in this series have changed changed their name but these were kept their names so peregrine is an unusual name but it means wanderer and that's what he is he doesn't want to follow the main road back to town he wants to wander off across the 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 wastelands of mars and what's the other one stone father stone you know he rock solid doesn't want to doesn't want to do those things he knows what's what and he just wants to get on so it's it's nice that those symbolic name namings are kept yeah they i think they're really fun characters i honestly i was a little surprised how little roddy mcdowell had to do so it makes me wonder if i'll see him again in an episode if they found another role for him he'll be back don't you worry oh good 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 (laughs) unfortunately he's also wearing his planet of the apes costume (laughs) all right well this sort of leads us back to the lustig story like we now that we've had this like journey we kind of know there's a little bit supernaturally happening on mars we can come back to the ghost of david um who's who's having a lovely dinner with his family now they're sitting around the family dinner table his mother anna is so happy he's back she's just like listen we gotta go into first town tonight we gotta celebrate that you're back and david's just like Mom, I don't really want to. I'm like, I, I feel very uncomfortable going to town. She's like, shut the fuck up. We're going to town. And it, and he's just like, Dad, can we not go? And he's like, "We're uh, your mother wants to go. We're going. I was just like, this is a real family. There's a real family dynamic here. Do they have an actual intention in town? It was just going to town, right? It wasn't like, we're going to town to see a movie. We're going to town for dinner. We're going to town for whatever it might be. They're just like, we have to go to town. Mom's that, in a good mood. She go- wants to go to town. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> she won't hear otherwise. No, did we ever learn in the story, um, at any point, did they say why David showed up initially? No, he just he just arrived. They see him out in the rain. Right, because I can't remember, because this is the one that I think was muddled, for me at least, uh, and maybe it's just my memory, in the book, because I can't remember why why he even showed up to begin with. Like, I understand what, how the story progresses, but do you remember, Phil? Uh, I do. I, I mean, in the book, I mean, it, it's very similar um, in the telling, but the atmosphere is very different in the book because in the book they really do live out in the sort of countryside and it feels more like a, a northern European fairy tale than anything else. Mm. Um, and it's just as the characters are going to bed and you kind of imagine that they're maybe they're drifting off into sleep and that maybe this creature has sort of been summoned up out of their dreams, their their hopeful dreams. It's It's never made explicit 
you know why why he's appeared but there is a strong correlation there between them having these sort of wishful thoughts and then up pops the this martian character interesting and, and that's the same really in the tv episode because you see them in bed um and then the storm's raging and you hear the the wind and he goes out to see what's happening outside and flash of thunder and that's where we see david caught in the, the thunder so it is a similar thing. It's, it's as if it's been summoned up by the elements in response to what they're thinking about, which is very nice, I think. There is clearly some connection between, uh, you're saying, people's hopes and their wishes, whether it's um, conscious or not, because that's what we're going to see as we go through, is that he is reflected through. Uh, it's I think mostly people who have lost children or lost uh, siblings or um, they have this this yearning to continue things that have that have uh been lost over time he becomes this personification of that yes yeah um it's, it's not entirely that because there's also a policeman that we see later oh on. that's Says, oh, right no, this is this is my suspect that i've been chasing after i forgot it was that classic the detective who had the one case he never solved that's and it, gets yeah. to solve it on mars i thought that was pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, it's interesting i think this character sort of fits in because we'll quickly learn he is a martian uh david and he sort of fits into what we know about the other Martians we've seen from it. Like, we know they can take on human forms and that it's tough for them to leave them behind necessarily. But it's sort of shifting our understanding of them in that, like, I guess human psyches, because they are psychic aliens, the human psyche is so strong, it can, like, forcibly push them into a role that they, they don't necessarily want to be in. Whereas in the previous one, we knew they used that ability to trick the second expedition into into their deaths. This time showing that, like, it's funny, humans killed them with chicken pox, but now we're seeing, like, just, like, the human influence on these Martians are just, like, the amount of, like, trouble they're causing for their for them is, like, exponentially worse. Like, to be forced into forms by just something walking by. Don't forget that he is probably, possibly the only Martian left at this point, as far as we know. Um, and so the ability of the Martians to control the minds of people, which we saw in an earlier episode, might be some kind of thing that emerges from a critical mass of Martians. It might be something that emerges from their social uh, structures. But when you're down to just one solitary Martian, there is the psychic connection to humans, but there isn't necessarily the power there. And I think that's what we see with David, is that he is he's kind of victimised, uh, because he's totally out of control and that's why he doesn't want to go to town because he knows that he's not going to be able to be able to control who he is but obviously the, the parents want to go to town and and to go back to your question of was it ever stated why they're going to town I don't think it is but my feeling is that it's the the probably the mother more than anything feeling that oh we've got the family unit back together now we've got what we came for now we can a go and celebrate but also we can go and show off to the world that look we've mm. got our son back and i think all of that goes unstated and i think is it, it feels stronger because it is unstated and i think it's one of those one of those few occasions where the the series has allowed some of the subtlety of the original story just to shine through without actually laying it out literally in dialogue which is what happens most of the time yeah, I, I 100% agree. I think the, all those emotions are underneath what's happening as they head into town. And it, it's fun. We, this is the first time we get to see First Town, as we've talked about it. It's got a cool look to it. And it, very dusty, but very, like, very frontier townish with futuristic elements. And 
they're sort of wandering through and it's it's very crowded like we see a lot of people there i i believe we see everyone coming out of a, a movie theater that's playing a future movie called the silver locusts there's quite popular and and do you know what the silver locusts is no i don't what, what is the silver ah. locust <laughs> the silver locust is the british title for the martian chronicles when it was oh, first really? published yeah oh i didn't was, know that yeah yeah it was published here as the uh, as the silver locusts and it retained that title all the way through until 1980 when the miniseries came out and to cash in on the miniseries the british publisher changed the title in the uk to the martian chronicles so that they could say as seen on tv that's very but, funny at the time the series was made, those people were going to see the film version of The Martian Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> I always love that there's this, um, I, I don't know who makes these decisions, but you know, uh, whether it's uh, books or products or whatever, that someone has decided this works over here and it's got to be renamed over here yeah. as if as if we're all that different. You know, it just, <laughs> it's just funny. And, and maybe maybe there is some polling or something that like indicates these things but it's like why not just call it the same book what does it matter but mm. someone decided yeah i, I think in britain that they were a bit snooty about the idea of science fiction in the 50s mm. so to call it the martian chronicles would be to absolutely signal what kind of book it was so they thought well let's call it something a bit more poetic that disguises the reality right so that's what they did <laughs> I, I actually really like Silver Locust's title for this uh, this series of short stories. I mean, it's a very grim it's a very grim title, but it's very accurate to like <laughs> what it's about. Just like just the monstrousness of us showing up on <laughs> <laughs> the plague. <laughs> At any rate, D David, of course, being surrounded by these people, he's really upset. He's like begging Leif to stay close to him, but of course, David immediately gets lost in a crowd, and which results in Leif sort of going on a, he's running around his son's missing he's very freaked out you know they just got him back he's terrified he doesn't want his wife to know he's lost david and he bumps into wilder who's just out in the town that day too as he does just connecting all these stories together and leif's in a panic he's like have you seen my son he's like a 24 year old kid he's, he's gone missing and of course wilder's just like he's, he's 24 dude like he'll be fine don't worry he'll, he'll come back <laughs> and it takes it's very funny because it takes wilder a second to be like Hey, wait a minute. Are you the dad of that astronaut who died who was also named David? And at which point uh, Leif like, comes to his senses. He's like, he's like oh, you're right. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, I'll see you around. Um, but it kind of brings Wilder into the story of just like, wait, that guy just said he saw his son. But I'm pretty sure I killed his son on Mars a few years ago. I like the, uh, I think, uh, Phil, to your point, this idea that they wanted to go to town to not only create a normalcy they didn't have in their life anymore, but also maybe that hubris of wanting to show off. But as soon as reality sorts of hits that everyone in terms of the history knows this person is dead. So that doesn't really work in terms of showing him off now. So not that they had time to think it out, but as soon as reality hits, which is Wilder's questions, you know, like what was their plan? They're going to hide David forever, you know? Hmm. But what are the chances that you're going to bump into Rock Hudson, the one man on Mars That's who true. knows everybody <laughs> That's true. on Mars? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a big mistake on on uh, old life's part coming up coming up to Wilder that way. But it's great because then we cut we pretty much hard cut into like this this church the missionaries work in, and we catch up with Father Peregrine. He's back in town. He's he's praying in inside this like the church is like real spooky. I really like the design of this church. It looks both uncomfortable. And yeah. like where something bad's going to happen. 
it's that blend of Earth and Mars that's not quite connecting. He hears a dripping, and what it is is there's there's blood dripping into the uh, baptismal font, where uh, that sort of horror imagery in this episode kind of comes back in for a moment. And as he turns around, he sees that Jesus Christ himself has dropped by the church, and he's finally living his dream. He's going to meet Jesus in person. I, th- I thought this whole thing was really interesting, how they did this. Just the idea of, because well, as we're going to learn very quickly, it's David, and what we can see is that if he had control over how he's um, visually shown, he doesn't have this anymore and it's too much. And so he's being reflected by whatever the person, either their wishes or whatever their um, hidden thoughts are. And as we mentioned before, Peregrine really wanted to meet Jesus in person. So he's getting to the downside for someone who asked to be Jesus is that he has him at his most ultimate suffering. So he's seemingly just come off the cross so it's it's not this isn't jesus having a good time with the disciples he's personified a body that is in in torment well, which ties in of course to the the christian icon iconography because you you have the christ on the cross and that's what he would have just been looking at uh, at that moment so it's I, I think it's it's logical and i think i think this is probably the best part of the entire miniseries frankly this this scene and the way we're led into this scene i think it's really very well done i yeah i think they play they this is sort of an exposition scene but done in like the most effective way because here this martian is now needing to explain to peregrines like i am not what you see like i i know this is what you want to see but like i am something else you and he's and he's essentially begging peregrine to stop looking at him so he can leave because the longer peregrine looks at him in this form the more peregrine wants him to be this form which will keep him there and as he's sort of bleeding from the wounds of christ he will die very shortly if he stays this way and there's this push and pull where peregrine it's so hard for him to look away from the thing he's always wanted but there is like a, a peregrine is able to understand the logic of what's being said to him and clue into like, this is not what I think it is. This is a Martian. A Martian is able to change. And he, he can bring, he finally brings himself to look away and allow the Martian to escape. But it's, there's a nice pull and uh, pull and push between the two of them that I was like, this is much more when I, when I originally turned around and Jesus was standing in the church, I thought it was going to get really hokey really fast, but it is honestly, it's, it's it's an exposition scene handled so subtly and so well that I was just like, oh, this is a great moment in this within this uh, this episode. And this whole section, by the way, is the piece I alluded to earlier that is not in the book. This is not from the Martian Chronicles, except in in one sense, which I'll tell you about in a moment. There, there's a separate short story, uh, which I think is called The Messiah. And uh, it was published years after the Martian Chronicles. So I vaguely remember when this miniseries first came out, some people saying, well, that's not part of the book. What's that doing in there? But um, it, to me, it absolutely ties in perfectly with the story of David. It takes David's story to the absolute logical conclusion that if you've got this Martian who becomes whatever somebody is thinking about, this is pushing it really to the logical extreme. Um, but where this comes from, this whole Messiah section, is from one of Bradbury's screenplays. So when in the nineteen hmm. sixties he was trying to get the film made, he he when he wrote the screenplays, he didn't tie himself to the book. He allowed his mind to wander. He allowed the characters to develop, and he did create some whole new sections. And one section that emerged from that period of screenwriting was this interlude with uh, the Messiah. Um, now the films that 
the films that he wrote the scripts for were never made but he had the sense to take that little scene and turn it into a short story and publish it as a short story but what's happened here is that they've brought it back in um, so this must mean that um, Richard Matheson who wrote the screenplay for all of this miniseries Matheson must have known about that story and I've got no evidence for this but it, it seems fairly obvious to me that Bradbury must have told him about this other story that could be used here and it's used without comment you know nowhere in the credits does it say based on the Martian Chronicles and the Messiah <laughs> it's it's just added in there but it's so it's so organic to the whole piece that I think it works really well and also the casting I, I when I was watching it I thought that's not the same actor can't be the same actor as David and I'd forgotten who this actor was playing Christ and I looked it up later it's John Finch who's quite well known as a, as a British actor um, and and a very talented actor as well so they, they they made some good decisions around this whole little section I think it really hangs together very well yeah that's fascinating because this it, it's such a great connective tissue both to to sell this storyline for David's story but also to connect back to the earlier Father Peregrine stuff like this was a part where I was just like, oh, they've tied it all together so nicely here. And it's so fascinating to know that it was like a part of a screenplay that got turned into a short story that certainly Richard Matheson must have had access either to earlier drafts or Ray Bradbury must have been very generous to like explain to him how to build this into a story. Really cool to know that that was not part of either, like any part of the original story. So Yeah. Yeah. At any rate, this is sort of how it, this sort of gets David out of the church and back into the world. And and as this happens, uh, Wilder drops by the church just to be like, hey, I bumped into Leif. He's acting real weird, saying something about his son. And Peregrine kind of explains to him that's like, oh, hey, I'm pretty sure I just saw a Martian. It appeared to me as someone else. And they talk about this ties back a little to that first part where. They talk about Spender and whether Spender may or may not have been a Martian. And we discussed this, Jordan, a little last week, is that mm-hmm. when Spender comes back, there is this, like, I, you know, they they leave you with a sense that something's maybe off about him or maybe not. But could he be an alien since we know alien, the Martians can become what you, like, become someone else? And again, here they sort of, like, toy with the ideas, like, was Spender a Martian when he killed everyone? Um I, I it's it's a funny little piece that I'm just like I don't know if they'll ever answer it and I am torn about it like I agree he was a little alien at that part but I also think it's more effective if, if it really was Spender doing all of it I, it's an interesting an interesting tease they do in this little section here just at the end it's only like a moment but but to that point and, and I think you're right Luke I think there is this nice concept of was he just a human that had you know was able to see further and see what humans were were to do or was it an alien or a Martian talking. The only thing I, the, the reason I think it actually was Spender is when he dies in the first episode, he doesn't fade away Jedi styles. And I think all the aliens do in this. Now, I don't know if that's like uh, just looking into it too much, but uh, but my, my feeling where I am is that it actually was Spender. I, I agree with that. I also read it the same way because we will later see David die and he, and when, when Spender died, he stayed Spender. So I was also like, I'm going to, I'm going to chuck that up as is Spender. <laughs> <laughs> This brings us back to Leif, though. He's still he's still searching for David as he's doing it. He bumps into a pal. His pal's just sitting out in front of a bar having a nice time, <laughs> invites him for a drink. And David, uh, Leif's pretty busy looking for David. Um, but this friend is there to let him know. He's like, hey, by the way, crazy story. This other family in town, they are walking past a church. And that daughter we all assumed was dead. We even found her body that one time. 
uh, she's back alive again, and they just took her home. Isn't that isn't that incredible? And of of course, Leif knows exactly what's happened, uh, which I like. Leif, Leif never fully buys with David's back, but he's willing to accept that this is maybe good enough for him. So when he hears this other family got their daughter back, he he like knows what's up. He's like, that's the David we found. He's become something else. But I, I like my wife will. She can't take it. She can't take David losing him again. So I'm I'm headed over to their house. I I love his excuses. Just like listen, there's got four or five other kids. I know they'll be upset, but it'll be cool. They've got other people. We don't got anybody. We gotta go. I gotta go talk this alien to come back with me. And this sequence we're gonna see. Weirdly, I almost felt uh, more empathy for the Martian slash David than I had in previous scenes. I don't know w- what exactly it was. Maybe it was the actress's portrayal, but I just I felt so bad for him because he just seemed so desperate to not have not having to keep going through all this over and over and over. And when Leif shows up, I don't know whatever the daughter's name was, but I just got the sense that she was just like, I just don't want to do this anymore. Like, can everyone just leave me alone? I mean, that's certainly the idea, I think, is she's like, these family feelings are so strong. I'm already here. Like, Leif, I can't leave this. And Leif essentially is able to convince the Martian to come with him by being like, listen, we will leave the first town. We will never come back. I promise you that. So if you come with me and return to David's form, we'll just never come back here. The Martian acquiesces, hops down off sort of this balcony of this house they're on, re-becomes the David form, and they kind of becomes a chase because they run off. The father of the dead daughter sees them and is just like, they're stealing my daughter again, gets his gun. But what I loved about that, though, is he's like, I got to chase them. And but I thought, I'm like, but he looks like David now. Why is he still chasing them? I'd be like, hey, you're just chasing two dudes. Your daughter, I don't know where she is. But he's uh, he's very committed to chasing them and shooting a gun. But is the Martian appearing to him differently oh, to the way the Martian is appearing to Leif? You're, you could be right. You're, you're probably right. I'm dumb. <laughs> I mean, uh, but no, you're not. Well, you might be, but no, no, he is. <laughs> but what we don't know is whether the the Martian is physically changing or whether it is in the mind of the viewer. Right, and uh, it could be either way. We we literally don't know. But I think that little moment makes sense if it is that each character is seeing the Martian in a different way. Well, and that's mm. sort of how it, the story wraps up. Is they run through town, get back to the boat. But a cra- like there's so much commotion around this chase that like a crowd gathers around and we get a really nicely edited scene where now the David, the Martian, is in a crowd of people. And like that, that police officer who's been chasing this one suspect his whole life is there and someone else who lost their husband is there. And every time someone yells it's like, no, that's my husband, there's like a hard cut and David's getting pulled by the arm and that cut suddenly is a different actor in that role and then a different actor. So there's like this really quick moment where it's. I think that is the idea is like maybe everyone is seeing him differently or maybe every time he's grabbed by someone, he changes form. It's hard to say, but it's a nice moment where he's like really quickly like becoming four or five different people. Wilder intervenes and sort of pushes everyone back and just like yells out. It's like, you don't understand. This is a Martian. Like what you're looking at is a Martian. This isn't this isn't who you think it is. And in the tragedy that is this storyline, the uh, the Martian then like kind of collapses, I guess, from the strain of all the psychic energy. And on the ground, he he flashes between all the different people uh, that it, the Martian has been in that moment, and then becomes the Martian that it is, um, which is that sort of one we've seen in the first episode: big, big bald head, laying in its drapey robes. And then it, it, it presumably passes away as it is it fades. I believe, as you said, Jed, uh, Jordan, Jedi style just fades out of yes. existence. 
and and we're sort of left with this moment where now everyone's lost the thing they were chasing and this martian dies in tragedy mm-hmm. possibly the last martian too possibly <laughs> and then i was at this point in the story i'm just like what like well that's a real that's a real capper to this show what on earth could possibly be left and a very distraught wilder goes home because you know as to his character he may have accidentally watched the only martian who's alive left on mars die again and just another failure to his attempt to help spender's legacy and he he walks in he's so distraught he finds his wife who's just like uh, you won't believe what happened in town today and she's just like i, I don't care uh, guess what I came over the news just now? Uh, Earth's going to war. I believe it's going to be the final war. And I'm just like, wait, what is happening now? Like, this show takes a real turn suddenly again in this final act. Yeah, and and uh, Phil, this this last little uh, sequence with um, I can't remember the character's name. I know it was Darren McGavin. Is this in the book? This whole because I'm I'm I remember a part in the book where people look and see a nuclear war happening on Earth. But I don't remember a Western-themed space Mars uh, restaurant. <laughs> oh, it's it's there. Yeah, it's a story it? called... Yeah, it's called The Off-Season. Um, whether he's dressed as a cowboy or not, I can't remember. Um, that might be something they invented for the show. But certainly he has a diner. And he, he of course, he is a character from the previous episode because we saw him mm-hmm. uh, in the, the Spender episode. And he's called Park Hill. Um, and yeah, it's all from the book. It's all there. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure in the book, Jordan, uh, it says uh, Sam Parkhill, played by character actor Darren McGavin, wearing a long, <laughs> flowing, curly wig. <laughs> I mean, I look, I love Darren McGavin, and I, I, but I'll be honest, like, and it's a fun little sequence, but it was weirdly my least favorite part of the episode. Maybe I don't even know if I exactly know why, but I think it might be because there's so many. Uh, nuanced and sort of lofty ideas throughout the show and then this sort of was like not quite like a comedic beat but it just it just didn't seem like it quite connected with the rest at least it didn't for me yeah the the tone is totally different to the rest of the episode and we've already seen that we've we've explored the nature of faith we've found possibly the last martian we've seen that if you push a martian to extremes you can get christ (laughs) We've seen that last Martian die. We've learned that Earth is just going to war. And then we have the comic interlude with uh, Darren Darren McGavin in a sparkly suit. So the tone is totally contradictory to what this episode's been leading up to. And to me, that ruins it because it's been going very well up until this point. It's for me, it's the best of the of the miniseries Mm. until that Darren McGavin scene. They could have done the same story but without putting in the, the comedy elements, and that might have worked better. But here's another interesting thing. The, the script for episode two did not include that story. That was in episode three. So when Richard Matheson wrote it, it was <laughs> this, this one was really all about the religious stuff, and that was all that it was about, and it culminates with... Um, the end of civilization on earth and oh my god what's going to happen next and then the final episode would have begun with the comedic story of mm. sam parkhill and i think you can do that i think you can begin a new episode with a mm-hmm. comedic tone but no in editing it they decided that they'd shuffle things around and so we get what we've got now and it's very it's very odd but i have to say the thing i do like though is just the concept of um, the gamble of I'm going to buy a piece of property in the middle of nowhere <laughs> and I'm going to open a restaurant because I know that eventually 
people are going to come. I think it's it's weirdly a similar plot to uh, if you remember the old Sergio, Sergio Leone um, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, I think, has the same sort of plot where someone buys land because they know a railroad's going to come in. Right. Um, but of course, it's taking that chance. Um, <laughs> and there's sort of that uh, sad sack element to it to have like, you know, you've gambled everything on a bad idea. There's something I think to play with there. I just think they are going for something else. Yeah. Yeah, I think it just fits awkwardly after kind of the bigger ideas and the like tone of the rest of the episode. And now that you say that, that it was part of episode, that may, when I watched it too, I was just like, this feels like a really weird, like it feels more like it's there to help us like prepare for the next episode and less that it has anything to do with the episode I just watched. <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense now that this was the start of episode three originally. <laughs> Well, maybe it was just like they thought, like, the episode's ending, and what a bummer. It's like, next on's Magnum P.I. or something. They're like, guys, we can't have people all upset about this alien. Let's add a little sparkly cowboy, cheer things up for the last 10 minutes. (laughs) And what brings us there is Wilder, basically, he now, he's had a call with his brother. All the funding for Mars has been cut. It's all going over the war effort now. They're going, like, full on. This this war's on. And essentially, there's going to be one final rocket leaving Mars or one final series of rockets leaving Mars to bring any people back to Earth who want to return because this might be your last chance to get back to Earth. So he now, Wilder, has to travel to the people who are the colonists who are in the furthest places who aren't going to get the news right away. So just to let them know, it's like, if you want to get on that rocket, you've got like 12 hours to get back to First Town. And this is why he goes to visit his dear old friend, Sam Parkhill, who, who, as we know from the last episode, really wanted to open a restaurant. He's opened this, like, <laughs> 60s diner slash future diner off in the middle of nowhere. As you said, Jordan, he's like, it's at a crossroads. When all the colonists get here, we're going to be filthy rich, basically. And it's called Eros, is e- what the restaurant was called. It's called Eros. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Weird name. I noticed it on one of the signs, the, like, fluorescent signs he had in the background. And he's he's got a he's got a wife now. He may have always had a wife, but his wife is there with him running it. And she's she's sort of put, I think she's she's game, but she seems a little more put upon because Darren McGavin seems to have gone restaurant mad. He's he's as you said, <laughs> dressed like some sort of Colonel Sal- Sanders sort of analogous cowboy, um, and very excited to have this. And he's happy to see his old friend Wilder show up to like tell him about like to drop in. But when he hears everyone's leaving, he just won't accept it. He's just like no 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 no. Tells his wife he's just like. Earth's always about to go to war. It's not going to happen. The colonists are coming and we're staying here. We're staying here. It's going to happen. We're going to get rich. Let's not worry about it. And big surprise for everyone as his wife and him are hanging out in this giant empty restaurant, as we see the whole time, suddenly uh, a Martian appears. This one more of a classic Martian we've seen before in in very drapey robes. This one's got a very cool silver V helmet he's wearing. Um, Very cool. I assume assume at some point they'll tell us it's to help deflect uh, human mind waves or something, but very cool V V silver Mm -hmm. helmet. We learned in the first episode, I can't remember exactly, but I think the uh, one of the first uh, stories we saw, the, the when the husband was irritated, his wife was having like sexy dreams about a human. He's like, hold on, I got to go to put on my mask of conflict. And he went out with that, which is always bad news if you see someone wearing their mask of conflict. But I think this was uh, as impressive as it looked. I think it was like the mask of property. The, uh, the mask of visiting exchanges. a neighbor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But he just he just misunderstood. It is nice. The, the Martian appears and he's just like, Hey, you Sam Park Hill, I've got a I've got a message to deliver to you. And to me, the wildest <laughs> part of this whole thing is uh Sam Park Hill is walking around this restaurateur dressed as a like sparkling cowboy, is walking around with a loaded revolver, which he just like pulls out of his belt and blows this alien away with. 
Well, and here's the—I mean, not to get caught in the weeds about this, but we've seen weapons in the future, and they're like laser-type guns, right? So he has—if this is 20, this 24 is part of his character. Yeah, he, it's part of his character. He's like, I'm going with this cowboy idea all the way through to the point where I have to have a loaded weapon on me at all times. And this is seemingly weeks before any customers arrive. So he's really committed. I also was laughing so hard. I was like, a lot going on here. And I mean, this is all is all played, if not for laughs, somewhat comedically for sure. Like it's it has a dark element to it. Like we're supposed to feel badly he shot the alien. But I think the character Sam Parkhill is supposed to be a little bumbling. He's the... He's the Mr. Bean of Mars with a, a violent American streak. Right. Well, and also that you as a viewer, I think Darren McGavin is a very watchable, likable actor. So you you sort of inherently like the character, even though he's his reaction is so, so impulsive and so shocking to just... Because I think we just said, he just pulls out a gun and just shoots the alien. And you're like, well, there's that. But it's great because his wife goes over because the alien, like the last one, uh, the Martian disappears. So she goes over to a pile of robes a big mask and the and the thing the martian was carrying to give to sam and she picks up and she's like oh it just seems to be some sort of message and sam barkill's like we gotta bury all of it in the backyard i don't want to know what that message is we're burying it in the backyard we're covering up this murder immediately yeah yeah and i guess they do that we don't actually see them but uh, seemingly he did he went and buried the martian clothing in the backyard yeah he, he it's very funny he just covers it up and then like i think kind of a few hours later maybe the next morning they, they're, they're outside the restaurant talking about how great it's going to be when these colonists finally arrive. And they look off into the distance and in a very like Dune-esque moment of this show, they're <laughs> like, uh-oh. And what we're told are sand ships, which are just like big sailing, aliens-looking sailing ships that are just sailing over the dunes of Mars. And I just kept thinking, I'm like, this could be a scene out of Dune or something. But they're coming yeah. in and it's, it's very like cowboy in the old west. It's just like, they're coming in and Sam Parkhill's like, we got to get out of here. They're definitely coming for revenge for that time I killed that alien. That time, six hours ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, hey, I had a question, though. So we see, I think it's about, th- I don't know, let's say it's about three or four of these sand ships that sort of look a little bit like like a Viking barge, kind of, because they have sails uh, seemingly for this Mars wind to, to, to move them. But he also... He also has one, like the exact kind. So, so my question was: Are they riding sand ships that Earthlings designed, or is he riding one that aliens designed? I do have an answer for you because they—they're like, we have to get out of here. They go to get in their normal car, but he—it's broken down, and Sam Hill hasn't got yeah. around to fixing it. So he's like, he—I believe the live dog is like, good thing I bought the last Martian sand ship at that auction. Oh, oh, I didn't hear that. He just happened to have purchased one at an auction earlier. You can fix anything with a line of dialogue. <laughs> I mean, this is where it is it like it's a very silly chase sequence that like does not totally fit. Like it's a fun chase sequence, but it does not totally yeah. fit with anything you've seen before. But it's like he's steering a sand ship. Sand ships are chasing him. He's shooting his revolvers off the side of the sand ship, just blowing aliens away left and right. And I like it's done with miniatures. The miniatures are like eighty five percent there. Like it almost works, and it's just kind of funny when you look back because. The thing with miniatures that's always funny, and I always enjoyed watching old movies, is, um, you know, when you have, like, cars uh, falling over cliffs or whatever it is, but, like, they don't have the proper weight. So these boats, when they're going, and there's one point where it hits a bump, and the boat is just, it made me laugh, because the boat just, it clearly has, like, it weighs nothing. It's like toothpicks. But I was like, all right, I'll allow it. (laughs) But they were so cheap that they didn't even correct that. 
you know, you, no, I know. You think they would have looked at the footage and said, "Is that any good, or do we need to go again?" <laughs> but it, no, no, we, we just got one shot at this. <laughs> he went. He went. Do you know what we're paying Rock Hudson? We're keep going. <laughs> it is funny. This is the most like serialized, it, like sci-fi adventure part of it. Like this is mm-hmm. like a, more of a I don't know what's that. What's that guy who's on Mars? <laughs> what's his name? John Carter. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that. He also uh, uh, drives the boat with like, um, what do you call it when you're uh, like riding a horse? He's like reins. He's got reins. Yeah. yeah, it's more like a sailboat or something—a very small sailboat where you just would pull two ropes to move the two the two mastheads to do it all. It's all very silly. Um, eventually, though, the Martians do overtake his 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 sail his sand ship. They board it. He like is forced to surrender more or less, and the Martians are like, "Hey." We really need to deliver this message to you. Uh, I wish you wouldn't kill us all too much, but we we don't mind. We don't mind you killing us all. Here's the message. And it's a very, like, they unroll, like, a metal scroll full of, like, an alien-looking language. And they're like, um, so here is the deed to almost half of Mars. This is for you personally, Sam Parkhill. You're getting the deed to almost half of Mars. And, you know, Sam Parkhill's beside himself. He's like, I'm getting half of Mars. You're giving me the deed. It's like, this is great news for me personally. And he seems to ignore the second part of the situation where the Martians say, uh, prepare for tonight. And he's just like, I don't care about whatever. I don't care about prepare for yeah. tonight. I've got half of Mars, baby. And they, they, they yeah. mount up their ships and they're like, we're never going to see you again. Here's half of Mars. Presumably, I guess they're going to go live on the other half of Mars. With They're, they're drawing, they're drawing a black... They've got their paintbrush. They're drawing a black paintbrush line across half of the room of Mars. You stay on your side. We'll stay on ours. Um, yeah. And we end up back at the restaurant. Sam Parkhill's so excited. Not only are is he sure the colonists are still coming to go to his restaurant to make him rich, he now is proud owner of half of Mars. And he tells his wife, he's just like, hey, pull up that uh, periscope, our classic restaurant periscope that you can point at <laughs> Earth to see it. Pull up that periscope. Baby, I bet you anything. There are rocket ships flying here, full of colonists. Our ships coming in. I actually thought the uh, as as funny as the ships looked. I thought the um, the effect of Earth uh, here we're gonna see. I thought was pretty good because what you're basically gonna get is that without actually saying it, clearly a nuclear war has happened. Actually, they do show it because they show the mushroom clouds and stuff happening in a sort of montage. But you do see Earth sort of just die is what we, we get to see and kind of become a glowing nuclear ball. Yeah, we're left with the idea that Earth, like as they look through this periscope, we just see Earth become an uninhabitable rock in space. The, 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 nuclear, the nuclear war has come to terms. Humanity has been wiped off on Earth. And I, I agree with you guys in that this is totally a, a weird turn for this episode. But I, I've got to say, this, this wife who never gets a name the whole yeah. time gets to end the episode with a joke she just makes a joke at the end of the episode which i guess phil as you said if if this is probably the name of the short story but she like looks away from earth it's been destroyed sam parkhill is like in shock knowing that everyone is dead and she turns to him and, and i believe her joke is um i got bad news baby uh it's gonna be an off season this year and i was in hysterics i'm just like i cannot believe they just nuked earth and they're ending on the joke of just like it's gonna be an off season i i like yeah. It's it's totally wrong for the whole episode, but I thought it was hilarious way to end this episode. <laughs> I agree with you. I thought that was the best part of this whole sequence, actually, and I think partially because of the actress's performance, which is half crying, half laughing, 
realizing that their business is dead. Well, but that's the least of the problems did. because everybody's dead. So there's such a uh, dark black joke to make. And I, I thought that was the best part of that. I, that my note sequence. was this woman rules. <laughs> <laughs> She's great at funerals. But that is really how the episode wraps up, which I was just like, all right, here we go. Here we go. At part three, I can't wait to see where we're at. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that sort of wraps it up. And I mean, I guess we can sort of talk about any holistic stuff. I, I, I think I haven't looked too much or I've tried to look a little bit into the making of the show, but they're not a lot. And there's not a lot written in general. Like certainly the Wikipedia is pretty light on details. And I, I'm kind of curious. I mean, Phil, like kind of do you have any sort of insights into like that I like about the making of this that we haven't talked about? Yeah. How long have you got? <laughs> oh, we've got all the time in the world. Don't worry. Whoa. <laughs> well, I don't know if you noticed that in the credits, there's all sorts of people named as producers and a number of different production companies are named. And sometimes you, you get a bit suspicious when you see so many entities involved in the creation of a piece and you, you wonder, has that interfered with its ability to be any good? Because... You know, this Stonehenge Productions, which is one of the entities named, may have been pulling it in one direction. And uh, what's his name? Milton Subotsky, I think, is one of the um, producers. Um, He he produced the Amicus films, which are like horror films, but not as good as Hammer horror films. (laughs) Um, So there's all sorts of people attached to it. And you you think, well, it must have been pulled in lots of different directions. And it was made by Charles Fries Productions for NBC, but with money from the BBC as well. So, you know, it's all it's all a little bit odd in the way it's set up. And then when you look at the people involved, um, the individuals involved, you've got Michael Anderson, who's previous well he'd he'd had a big hit in the last few years because he had made logan's run Mm -hmm. which was Mm. hugely successful Um, but that was the last sort of big science fiction film before star wars changed science fiction films forever and this is made on the other side of that this is made after star wars this is made after close encounters of the third kind this is made very much in the era when uh, visual effects technicians can do anything and yet in the making of this they used people who can barely do anything at all because you've got these (laughs) awful sand ships and there's some really terrible green screen work coming up in episode three where you've got um rock hudson actually meets a martian and they go to shake hands but because they're both ghosts or to each other they are ghosts their hands are supposed to pass through each other so they did it using this sort of green screen effect oh dear that's terrible terrible. that's one of the things i've liked about these episodes is they haven't really done much green screen work they at least tried (laughs) to keep it relatively practical so i'm i'm i don't like to hear that we're gonna hit green screen down (laughs) next week so there's all sorts of weird oddnesses about this but the 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 biggest thing with the production side is that it was uh, the contracts were signed I think in 1977. So it was actually the year of Star Wars was when they signed to to do this series. Uh, Bradbury, you may have noticed, got the possessive credit up front. Mm-hmm. So it's not The Martian Chronicles. It's Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles. So they paid big money to uh, to get the rights. But also the, the, the price you pay, if you like, for wanting to adapt Bradbury is it has to be Ray Bradbury's blah, blah, blah. And then he wants to have some say in it. 
but he chose not to write the script, but he still wanted a say in it. And uh, he, I think you mentioned at the beginning that he stood up at a press conference and said that it was boring, which was not a wise move on his part. He also did an interview for a newspaper in, I think, January 1980, where he talked about the problems with the show. And as a result of that, he received a letter from the lawyers of Charles Freese Productions saying that your contract forbids you to say this. So they were essentially threatening him. And why on earth would an author um, say bad things about a show that's got his name on there as a possessive credit? And it, it really goes to the cheapness of this whole production. Yes, it cost a lot of money, but they weren't spending the money wisely. Yeah, well, you have to assume with that many producers and, you know, clearly if he's negotiated his possessiveness over the, like Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, he there was a lot of money probably exists above the line about oh, how yeah. much was left by the time it got to production is a very like, I, yeah, I think we can see the answer. Yeah, yeah. I'll give uh, credit to Ray Bradbury, though. Uh, in his defense, Stephen King has, any chance he's had, he's mentioned how much he hates The Shining, which I always thought was so funny <laughs> because it's like, you've made so much money, and, and the movie has uh, ended up being much, much more popular than the book was, but he just hates that book and, and uses that at all times. Um, so maybe it's just that it's just that difficulty for Bradbury of seeing, uh, you know, something that was in his mind on the screen and it not quite reaching the same you know levels yeah. of his imagination yeah yeah he did um he did view early cuts of all three episodes and he offered some comments in writing but also one of the executive producers did the same which is a standard thing for for an executive producer to do anyway but it's quite clear from those notes which i've seen that there were considered to be enormous problems with each episode and the whole sandship sequence was condemned this is this is the producer called dick berg who is a, a writer well he was uh, a writer as well and he did some of the polishing of the script after Matheson wrote it but Dick Berg totally panned the sandship sequence and said look we've got to do this again but they didn't do it again they just lived with it because somebody probably somebody controlling the purse strings said ah it's not worth it it's not worth it but I think that the biggest issue with the series for me is that it's well, it's badly directed, except for one or two moments, which are stunning. Um, the, the first appearance of David, I think, is stunning. The sequence with the Christ, I think, is stunning. Um, a few other little bits throughout the series that are stunning. But there are many scenes which are just badly directed, with terrible line readings. And uh, I can't remember any specific lines, but um, the Spender character in episode one, there's a couple of places where he just delivers the lines totally wrong and and the meaning is lost but the director's not paying attention and it's just weird that you've got somebody of the caliber of Michael Anderson who's kind of sleepwalking through the whole thing and that's what I find most disappointing about it but hmm. what I what I do believe is that with a good editor who was able to <laughs> go at this based purely on the material available I think you could make a fairly decent show if you were to redo the the effects I mean th those have to be redone but if it were to be re-edited from the existing footage, I think this could be made a lot better than it is because it's very slow. Um, there are lots of reactions where you see Rock Hudson sees a thing happening and then we go in on a close-up of Rock Hudson while he thinks about it. 
And then he sort of turns <laughs> as he realises what's what the meaning of this thing is that he's just been thinking. And then he walks off uh, to go and deal with it. And all of those reaction things, they're just so incredibly sluggish. And it seems to me that they've got their two-hour slot for each episode, including commercials, of course. Um, and it, it's as if, well, we, we can't cut anything out because the episode will be too short now. So they've left all of these long, flabby scenes in there, and it's oh, it, it, it's painful to watch. I, on my, I've got a DVD player which lets me play things at one point three speed, and actually, <laughs> it it works much better. The Martian Chronicles is much better if you play it a little bit faster than it's meant to be. Just give it a little extra juice. <laughs> yeah. We talked about this a little last week too. Uh, it is interesting. Like you watch it and like. There's a lot of cool ideas that we, I, I think I really liked and I think Jordan really liked, but it was also just like, it does feel like it an edit, a different edit of it, or if you didn't have to worry about that two-hour time slot, you, you, would re, you would like, not only would you like trim it up and make it quicker, you would probably adjust where scenes play out or you maybe would move, because often the stories play out individually, so they're not like cross-cutting between each other. And, and maybe there's a version that like works better where we can cross-cut between a few of the stories a little more. It's an odd, it's, it is an odd piece because there are moments that really shine that I really like. And I think you've pinpointed some of them from this episode where you can really see, like we've watched on this podcast and really bad stuff where like people just didn't care. And you can see moments where people really care a lot in them. And then you can, and there's a be long sequences where it just, it just, they're functionary. They're just giving you exposition. They're just getting you to the next place. And so it's such an odd show to see like that whole church sequence, which is so well done and like well thought out and then like other sequences where when they walk through town it's the sloppiest like travel through first town like you barely get a sense of first town it is it is truly just functionary but like it could have been like an epic scene of coming to town but like whether it's scheduling problems whether it's budgetary problems like they just didn't that thing did not get to shine for some reason i agree with both of you and i don't i don't uh disagree that like th- this this it's slow there's no question and it's pedantic and plodding i sort of forgave most of it though and maybe it's just my expectations were i wasn't expecting star wars i didn't think this was going to be a go to theater, enjoy your popcorn kind of thing. I knew this was going to be a more uh, contemplative sort of thing. So I was just like, all right, well, parts are kind of slow because this is a slow movie. That's what they want. Um, Again, I don't disagree with any of those points, but I think at least for me, I sort of forgive it more because it's in service of some uh, loftier ideas. And I think that's, that's a very generous way of looking at it. And I think maybe... That's how it's going to be seen if if this survives any any further beyond this discussion today. Um, I think that might be how that might be the legacy of this series. Um, I'm somebody who watched it when it first came out because I'm that old. Uh, I saw it on first viewing when it was shown on British TV, and boy was I disappointed with the very, oh really yeah with the first episode particularly because that whole story of Ela and her husband doesn't really make any sense in the TV episode. But if you read the short story, it makes perfect sense. And it's just they've left so many things out um, that you think, why Why are you bothering to even do this? Now, after that one story, it picks up a bit and it does improve. Uh, but they seem to have started... The, the very weakest part of the entire miniseries is the opening story. 
and they really shot themselves in the foot. And that was one of the things Bradbury complained about, one of the things Dick Berg was aware of. And they could have reshot because they had the time. They delayed the the original air date for this was supposed to be, I think, September 79. But they pushed it back to January of 1980. So they, they gave themselves four extra months um, in order to try and make it better. But I don't think they did. But how do you feel now? So you watched it, you know, 42 years ago mm. and now watching it now as uh, as not a kid. Like, do, do you feel differently about it or is it is it just sort of bringing back the same sort of feelings? To be honest, I, I feel pretty much the same as I did then. There, there are some scenes which now work better for me than they did before. Um, I, I think that the most of this second episode works much better for me now than it did when I first saw it. But that's that's because of my my maturity, if you like, my um, sort of more sophisticated way of coming at it. So I can see that when you're talking about it having loftier ideas than most TV TV shows of the time, uh, I think you're right, and that's something that people like me need to bear in mind. Is no, it's not as good as the book. Uh, we can't expect it to be as good as the book, but we can expect it to be good on its own terms, mm. and. In places it is, and I just wish that it were consistently good all the way through, um, but it's far too variable for me. Yeah, I think that's a great summation of it. I, I, you know, I think if you've read the book, you're probably going to come in here and be a little let down. I think for me, I, I was even only vaguely, I haven't read the book, and I was only vaguely aware this even existed as a miniseries till I found it on a list somewhere. It's like, oh, that might be interesting to watch. So I came in as a result with very low expectations because the only things you read about are what a disappointment it was for everyone at the time, which I told like if you had been sitting around waiting for it to come out and you were excited to watch it because Bradbury's name was on it, I'm sure they're they're pushing it as an exciting event on television. There's no way this is going to live up to it. If anything, the fact that it's kind of been forgotten in the last sort of 20 to 30 40 years like that it's sort of fallen like it's not something people talk about as a classic people don't go back and rewatch it for me to sit down and watch it i'm like oh there's you know it's by far a very imperfect piece of art but it's a, there's a lot to invest it, it's it's meatier than i ever expected it to be so in some ways i think that is the the bonus it's got is by being forgotten a little bit for someone new to come into it it's just like it's a bit of a surprise mm. That, that makes perfect sense to me. That, uh, there's, there's one other angle which uh, I think is probably worth considering, and, and that is that this is... A, well, yeah, yes, it's a miniseries, but miniseries was a thing back in the late 70s. You had shows like Roots, which I don't mm. know if that was the first miniseries, but it was the first real blockbuster miniseries, shown, I think, over a series of nights originally, rather than once a week. Um, and that made it event television. But miniseries in the late 70s were these big things with hundreds of star names attached. And that's one of the things that The Martian Chronicles does. It puts all the names at the beginning of mm -hmm. every episode. So, yes, you've got Rock Hudson, who's there every episode, but you'll also see Barry Morse. And Barry Morse is only in the third episode, but his name's there all the way through. So they've they've made this thing of signing up as many... I mean, they're not huge names, but they're all big TV stars, at least, of that time or of the of the preceding decade. So they've signed up all of these people 
and rather than just admitting which episodes they're in, they've put them all up there in the opening titles. And that was the way that things were done with things like Roots and Shogun and uh, Rich Man, Poor Man. And I bet you, if you go back and look at all of those other miniseries, with the exception of Roots, which I think does stand up remarkably well, most of those miniseries from that time were really quite plodding, quite dull adaptations of books. And so to, to expect the Martian Chronicles to be <laughs> exceptionally good, it would be bucking the trend of what miniseries were at that time. As I say, with the exception of Roots, which it really was exceptional. It's an interesting point to make of sort of like the conventions of the miniseries that maybe don't exist in the same form now, mm. which is which is an interesting point of like, they kind of were a little bit slow and plodding because they had to play over several nights in a row and you had to stretch things out. So that's what you get. And maybe it doesn't translate as well to uh, more modern viewing. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Having said that, that, with The Martian Chronicles, because it comes from short stories, you could very easily go in there with a pair of scissors and cut this up into, I think, half-hour segments or 21-minute segments or something like that. You could turn it into not a miniseries, but a like a full season of short episodes. And many of them would work. You'd have one or two dodgy ones but you'd have quite a few that w would work quite well on their own terms if properly trimmed down you know yeah i agree even looking through a modern lens i'm just like oh this is it's mostly just an interconnected world of stories yeah. and i'm just like it does feel odd i'm like i'm surprised i'm not hearing about amazon's martian chronicle it feels <laughs> it feels prime for someone to build a shared universe sort of world out of it it, it feels like it's ready to go yeah but maybe because it, it the things that explores aren't really action adventure in that science fiction realm maybe it's just like less there's less want to do a more uh, philosophical version of the show in in a modern age it doesn't really it's not going to fit the mcu model very well like <laughs> but may, maybe maybe you could do a very uh, philosophical shared universe movie i don't know i'm not sure i mean we've seen things like um foundation be made for for tv no i haven't actually seen it but Foundation, Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, comes from a similar sort of origin, originally written as short stories, then joined together to make a series of novels. So it's similar to what Bradbury did with the Martian Chronicles originally. So I, I don't see it as being an impossible thing in a streaming age to have a series based on the Martian Chronicles. In fact, I think it's very likely. I think it will happen. And we're more likely to see a new version un under the modern methods of television than we were 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's it's now long enough in the past, the, this miniseries is, is long enough in the past that most people don't know about it, that I think it's it's something that you could resurrect and it wouldn't come with baggage. But even things that come with baggage, even things like Lost in Space, came with terrible baggage, has been able to be made into something fairly decent for, for the streaming world. So uh, I hold out hopes that we will see a, a, a better version of the Martian Chronicles someday soon. And at the very least, you mentioned Shogun, and I saw that they're redoing Shogun. So there you go. There's really? one more. Yeah. 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 Very good. I think that this episode of our podcast will be the tipping point. I think this will push Hollywood back to it. <laughs> Well, uh, this is probably a good time. Uh, Phil, we usually do a little rating of the particular episode we watch. So part two, 
you can treat it as the whole series if you want, but usually we focus in on this particular part. And I think that might make sense for you since I think you feel strongly about how this fits into the whole. And we do it much like IMDb is a 10, a 10 star scale. So a rating out of 10. And we'll start with you. If you, if you, if that works for you, do you, you have a, like a rating out of 10, you would give the, the settlers. Mm. Any way you like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to sound too harsh, but I I think probably about five and a half or six for this. Mm. Um, but I, I do think this is the best of the three episodes. So what would you give in the first one? Mm, five, I think. This is a very interesting. I, I, mm. I, I As we said, we gave the first one 7.5. Mm. And I think this one obviously suffers from a lot of the same issues the other one has and i think i think you're both right in that last sequence feels even even when i'm rewriting my notes or thinking about the like they just it feels like a different thing entirely when we get to the sam park hill side but i'll be honest i uh, this is still surprising me i have no expectation so that's definitely helping but it, it is surprising me at every turn i don't know where the story's going and i'm enjoying the ride and i like i, I i'm having a good time i'm gonna go seven on this i think luke it's happened again I'm also giving it a seven and it's, and it's not that I think it's like, it's great because all the things we've mentioned and it has problems and it's not like, it's not thrilling by any, by any stretch, but I think I'm just charmed by something that is intelligent and thoughtful and nuanced. And for me at, at least that forgives the other things that are not that good about it. Like Phil, you mentioned, yes, not all the performances are great. The directing is haphazard at points. Like, it seems like sometimes they don't even get enough coverage of things. Um, it seems like they did one or two take. The special effects are not good. The miniatures are not good. All these things, and I know it's crazy then to give it a seven, but the scenes that are good are good enough that I, I just forget about that stuff. And I only remember the three things that were really good and really spoke to me. So I end up enjoying it and I just kind of go, oh, well, yeah, there was a a sequence with boats that really sucked, but I just don't, whatever, I don't think about it. So for me, it's a seven. Very good. I think those ratings are good. I think it really kind of, I think if you're coming in wondering if you're going to like it, I think it really depends on, I think, your familiarity with the source material in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. Um, I think that can, I think that'll really tilt you one way or the other on it. If you're, I mean, and I'll be honest, like, it's kind of nice re- watching these. I, I am now far more interested in reading Martian Chronicles now. I'm like, there's a lot, there's a lot of interesting stuff here that I'm like, I really do now want to read the source material, which will probably shift me a- perhaps away from enjoying the miniseries as much. But it's certainly as an intro point, I'm I'm quite enjoying it. That's good to know. I mean, I, I think people who haven't seen it before and who haven't read the book really should watch it. I, you know, I, I wouldn't, um, if I'm rating it lowly, I'm, I'm not saying that that should stop people from watching it because there is much to enjoy here it's for me it's more to do with the consistency or lack of consistency Mm. of the piece Um, I think anybody coming to this cold will probably find that there are some things there that they will enjoy and things that they will consider to be ambitious but be warned that there will also be things that will make you groan and say what are they doing now counterpoint Darren McGavin wears a sparkly cowboy costume. <laughs> I always, every time we do this, I always am reminded that I'm like, Jordan and I have watched some really bad stuff over yeah. the last three and a half years. So I'm realizing now we are also just like, our brains are now miswired in such a way that like things that are just like now, like, okay, we're like, oh, this isn't like the worst thing I've ever seen. It's <laughs> yeah. amazing. 
Yeah, though we mentioned earlier, um, if we don't cut it out, Outcasts. This is way better than Outcasts, and Outcast has a bigger budget, better performances, better special effects, better direction, everything. But this is better than that show. That show just didn't have any ideas. Was the problem? Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> that show had no ideas. This is all ideas with nothing else. Well. I think that brings us pretty much to the end of the podcast. Uh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and if our listeners want to find out uh, more about what you're up to, where, where's a good place to uh, follow you online or a place to see your work? Best place to go is my website, which is www.bradburymedia.co.uk. And on there you'll find links to my podcast. Well, actually, I have two podcasts. Um, and you also find my blog posts and a load of stuff about Bradbury's films and TV work and books and all that. Oh, I think that's I think that's right up our listeners' alley too. When I when I was looking into uh, kind of all the work you do, I'm just like, man, just all this Bradbury stuff focused, but on his like sort of media side as opposed to the book side. It's really interesting work you're doing. So I, I think people should definitely check it out. I think they'll really enjoy it. Right, thank you. Um, but yeah, that wraps it up for the episode. So listener, you can always email us at continuumdrag at gmail dot com and on Instagram and Twitter. We'll have we'll have some clips. We'll have some sand sand sailboats ch- chasing each other on there. I think we should just have clips of Rock Hudson just looking and thinking, and just it just in just in ten second clips for everyone. Well, you can find those uh, at at Continuum Drag is the handle on Instagram and Twitter for that. But that's it. That brings us to the end of the show. So, listener, thank you so much for joining us. And Jordan, I will see you next week. See you then. Continuum Drag is recorded in Toronto, Ontario. Theme music by James Rex Seedler, produced by Jordan Dulloch and Luke Black. Special thanks to Aaron Hughes.